Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Well, we have Shane Clifton. Hi, Shane. Welcome to Central. And Ellie, welcome. Um, Shane's going to speak to us tonight. So I don't know. Maybe if you come. Oh, it's this morning. Oh, tonight. You're like, so you have to wait a really long time. No. Um, Brian, do you want to work this out? Oh, will you? Okay. Yeah, he'll use this. So this is Shane. We've met and um, hung out before. Actually, Zach from YWAM kind of was the connection between me and Shane a little while ago. He was telling me about some of the studies he'd done with Shane at Alpha Crucius College in Sydney when you were still working there. And my little ears pricked up because I just thought Shane sounded like a really interesting person. Um, So yeah, you used to teach ethics theology and ethics at Alpha Crucius College and then in the last couple of years you've worked for the Royal Commission into Disabilities. Are you going to tell us about that? Yeah Yeah. well so this is Shane everyone and I'm really glad that he's here this morning. So as you know our passage we've been looking at the healing story of the man who's lowered through the roof by his friends to Jesus and I thought it was really important for us to just listen um, to different perspectives and through different lenses. And so I've invited Shane this morning to share some of his life with us, but to speak to us through um, the lens of disability theology and all such similar things as we're engaging this passage. So I'll pass to you and you can talk to us. Excellent. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, hey, it's great to be here. I've got to be honest, it's been a little while since I've been in church. Uh, make of that what you will. Um, but uh, it's a pretty bold thing to do, actually, Carolyn, to invite a paralysed person to speak on the healing of the paralytic man, isn't it? So, um, so you have a bold pastor, I like that. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, uh, I guess, take you through uh, the evolution of my reading of this text. And uh, I use that word slightly loosely. I think when we think of the word evolution... We think of it as sort of a step-by-step improvement, but that might not be the case. Maybe I should use a different word. It's just a, um, a different set of readings uh, that I've approached this text with over the course of my life. So, um, so in some sense, this will give you a little bit of my story as well. Uh, I don't need to read it because I understand you've got it, but for those who haven't been following, this is from Mark chapter 2. Uh, it's a very well-known story. It's called The Healing of the Paralytic. Um, it involves a paralysed person. Um, I think he was a man, paralysed man. Four friends who are trying to take their paralysed friend to Jesus. They get to where he's supposed to be and there's a crowded space. They can't get in the building, so they carry him upstairs, rip a hole in the roof of the building, lower him down before Jesus, Um, and uh, Jesus forgives him his sins. A bunch of people get mad about that, Um, and so he um, prays for his healing. The guy takes up his bed and walks. So that's the passage, um, pretty famous passage. And uh, I guess the first time I um, sort of came across this passage, at least formally, I was... um, Didn't become a Christian until about 16, and then my wife and I got married really young, a few years later, 19. We moved to Sydney, and uh, we were from Nara, so from the south coast. Um, Well, grew up in Berry, actually. You'd know Berry, wouldn't you, here? So, Um, and we joined a little church up there, and we were—it was a Pentecostal church. 
I understand this is a Pentecostal background, this church as well. So I was a young Pentecostal and uh, a friend of mine and us, we'd, we were youth leaders and we decided to run a healing rally. Even that word makes me cringe slightly now, rally. Um, so we ran a healing rally. Actually, I can remember it was in a church a little bit like this. The venue was quite similar. And uh, we ran this rally. I don't know, there might have been 40 people there. Who knows, not big. We prayed for a bunch of people, including in the room was a young girl, 12-year-old girl who had cerebral palsy. And I can remember her coming to the front and we prayed for her healing. And you won't be surprised. What do you think happened? Nothing, of course. <laughs> so she left, uh, she left unhealed. And uh, I remember talking to my friend afterwards. And my friend was a little more of a Pentecostal faith man than I was. And I said, oh, it's a real shame that this young girl didn't get healed. And he goes, no, that's a lack of faith. You've got to have faith, trust that God has healed. We look um, not with our physical eyes, but we look with eyes of faith. So there you go. We just believed that God had healed. It sounds absolutely absurd now when I think about it all this time down the track. But that was my first reading of the text. And so it's the young Pentecostal reading. You read this text as sort of evidence that Jesus the healer and we're the little messiahs today who are sort of called to continue the healing ministry of Jesus and to pray for people. Um, so that's the reading number one. The second reading was a few years later and I went to theological college or Bible college back in the day then. It was Alpha Crucis but it was prior to that it was called Southern Cross Bible College back in those days. So that was 90 six I think um, and so in, in, in those days I suddenly became a slightly more sophisticated reader of the Bible so I thought I was still in my 20s and uh, from that perspective you start to see the text a little bit different you realize the text isn't just about saving souls and healing bodies uh, but the gospel message has a liberation aspect to it and if you've probably been with Caroline no doubt you've heard something about liberation theology or its type uh, along the way but it's the idea that the gospel isn't just sort of about heaven and hell about saving souls but there's a justice element to the biblical text and so um, and so when you read the gospel Jesus comes to um, to set free captives, to um, heal the sick, to liberate the poor, to liberate those who are captives. And this is a message of justice. And of course, um, sickness, disability, injustice, poverty, they're actually all much more interconnected than we often give credit for. Um, that's, that's not to say wealthy people can't get sick. Um, but maybe their experience of that sickness can be quite different as well. Um, and so the justice reading of the text sees Jesus as a liberator from the poor. And uh, so that was my new reading of the text. Of course, the truth was I was a young 25-year-old um, Bible college student who actually didn't know many paralyzed or poor or people needing justice. But I imagined myself <laughs> as a worker for justice <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know as we all do we like to be the world's saviors don't we whether that's um, whether that's the young healing professional or the you know the one who's going to bring justice to the nation that they're a part of 
and uh, that's, a, that's an okay thing for young people to imagine themselves changing the world. It's only a lot later in life that you realise actually we really do have very little influence but uh, that's a story for another day. My third reading of the text um, comes from 2010 and uh, this was uh, when I had my spinal cord injury. So um, the injury was a product of um, a, uh, an accident I had in a church facility in the south coast. Um, my kids had been watching this church uh, build a skate park with a sort of a jump into one of those foam pits. So it was quite a large jump. And you know the foam pits they have in the gymnasium um, where you know the idea of the foam pit of course is meant to make you safe when you fall but this was badly built and there's the message for young youth leaders out there um, you build things that can seriously impact people if you build them wrong and uh, so the foam pit really wasn't deep enough and it didn't use good enough foam so I was the type of parent anyway who parented by play my kids were 10 12 and 15 I think at the time and uh, maybe 10 13 and 15 but um, so they were doing it and I took the jump landed upside down and knew immediately I was in serious trouble. I couldn't move. Um, so I um, called out to my wife who came and uh, held me still um, while the ambulances arrived and I eventually got flown to Prince of Wales Hospitals, my first helicopter ride, yay. Um, didn't see a lot looking at the ceiling. Um, and uh, I spent about seven months in hospital, learned that I'd broken my fourth and fifth vertebrae. So that's in the the neck there. Um, so what that means is um, quadriplegia, it's affected four limbs. So I've, um, um, you imagine quadriplegia, you often probably think Christopher Reeves, I can't move anything from there down, but it, my injury is slightly lower than his. So I've got, for example, biceps, I can lift that arm up, but I don't have triceps or wrist or finger movement, so I can't move uh, that part of the body. I've had some recovery. So what they say is when a person breaks their back or injures their neck, keep them still because you don't know how much recovery they might or might not have. Um, so they, it, it's the, not the breaking of the bones that matter, it's the damage done to the nervous system that runs from the brain down to the muscles. Um, so I spent seven months in hospital. So I've got a little bit of recovery on this right side, for example, that's how come I'm able to hold uh, this microphone. So um, suddenly... I was reading the scriptures in hospital and so in the previous two readings I was the healer and the social justice warrior but suddenly I found myself in these texts as the victim, the person who's needing the help of others and it's really quite interesting actually to read the scriptures as a person with disability um, because you find yourself littered across the pages in a way that um, I hadn't really probably felt in quite the same way before. And uh, so I was the person in need of prayer. And prayer was really uh, important and significant and meaningful in hospital life. I've had a lot of prayer, as you can well imagine. Everyone who came in the room um, prayed for me. And that prayer was extremely beautiful um, because it expressed people's love and compassion and desire for my well-being and um, I think the best of church environments happen often um, in crisis and in difficulty 
Um, in fact, I think that's true of a lot of the great things in human life, isn't it? None of us want to go through horror and pain and difficulty, but so many good things, or we, we discover so much um, love and compassion and joy. All the good things in life we earn through crisis, often more than through just celebration and ease, don't we? So I had lots and lots of prayer. Um, I guess the end of that prayer story, although it expressed a lot of love, was still a little bit similar to uh, the first person with the cerebral palsy prayer because, hey, I wasn't healed. Um, and it's interesting because prayer for healing can become a bit of a burden um, when you're the one being prayed for and not getting healed. And um, so I can remember really starting to get a bit tired of the prayer for healing. You can pray for me for other ways. Um, I remember a distinct instance. It, it just becomes extremely common. And um, I was on a train just reading my book on the way to work. And of course, I'm interrupted. Hey, can I pray for you for healing? And I felt like saying, fuck off. Um, am I allowed to say that in church? Oh, okay. So. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Actually, it's really interesting because I think I just might have said no, but I wrote a blog about it that night. Um, I, I used to keep a blog back in those days, really just saying how annoyed I was. And I think the guy was overweight at the time, and I was a bit rude in my blog and said, why wasn't he praying for his own weight rather than my disability? Now, I don't I have different attitudes to weight and things like that now, so probably wouldn't write that in the same way. Um, but he read the blog, that guy. <laughs> so oh, that was quite funny. Um, a good lesson for him and, and for me. Um, the next reading of scripture comes a few years down the track as I've thought about what it means to be disabled. And um, when you first have a spinal cord injury, um, you're mostly just concentrating on getting as much healing and well-being as you can. Um, and I, you don't really learn about disability and its meanings until a little later in life. Um, some spinal cord injury people never do. They just get sort of trapped in just thinking about healing and getting better. Um, but I happen to encounter a bunch of um, really amazing people with disability. And if you don't know much about disability, the, the, the one grounding sort of fundamental insight of disability that emerged really in the 70s and 80s was this distinction between the medical and the social model of disability. Um, and understanding this, uh, this way of disability really changed the way I thought about myself and the world in which I was a part of. And so the medical model of disability says that the problem with disability is the person whose body is broken and needs to be fixed. Um, and so the solution, of course, to disability then is, um, well, from a Pentecostal perspective, prayer for healing. Um, from a social perspective, medical solution. So you get the person into rehab, into the doctors, you, um, you give fortunes to spinal cure, for example. Um, so you'll see the spinal cord injury um, community is really focused on cure because they're trying to fix this individual. And by the way, I'm not against cure, um, but stop sending me the cure videos because um, the, 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 um, 
the fundraising community for <laughs> Spinal Cure uh, uses a lot of um, pity um, and oversells the solutions. Um, so I'm not expecting um, that they're going to solve spinal cord injury in the foreseeable future. And for me to live waiting for that is actually something of a problem because I'm not making the most of my situation now. I'm sort of sitting here desperately waiting for some future that may or may not come. So that's the medical model. Um, but the social model of disability says that disability is not a problem of a broken body, but it's a social problem. And the solution to disability is not to try and change the individual, but to reshape the society in which you're a part of. And so from that perspective, the problem with, um, <laughs> I don't mean to pick on your building, but you, you, you do get it. Um, the problem with me not being able to get into this building is not that I am a wheelchair user, but that there's steps on entrance. Um, and so, and, and that's true for, you know, if you're a deaf person, the problem is, um, you know, not that you can't hear, but that the rest of us don't know Auslan or some version. So it's really interesting that if you change the shape of society, then this thing that was a barrier to participation in the world is eliminated and suddenly a person is able to function um, and be involved in the community in the same way as everyone else. So that really sort of, now look, I think that, you know, we tend to take this as an either or, that, you know, you're, it's either the medical model or the social model. And of course, in reality, it's not that simple. Um, I do have physical problems that I wish could be fixed. And so it's, it, we're always both embodied and social creatures. And it's just a model, it's a way of thinking, which I think it, it's about changing um, our thought patterns, not a sort of, a perfect way of reading the world. But if you read then this text from the perspective of a social model of disability, again, you can read it a little differently, can't you? Because here is a person with a paralysed body who can't get into a building. And so what do they do? Well, they rip the roof off. They change the shape of the, of the building so that he can get in there and participate with everyone else um, in this uh, social gathering so that the paralysed man is a part of what's going on and not stuck outside the building. I don't know whether that was, was that my fourth reading? I th all right, or a fifth reading. Um, so the, the fifth reading was a few years down the track again. And this we can sort of locate around um, 2018, 19, let's say. Um, and I'd been, at a the I'd been teaching theology and ethics for, um, and let's just pretend you don't know what, which institution this is. Of course, Carolyn introduced you to it. So. <laughs> um, but I'd been teaching there for a, um, two decades and, um, and been there since 96, 95. So that's a long time. Is it sort of 20, whatever number of years? Um, and I'd been pro-gay since about 2005. Um, I think teaching ethics um, gets you to change your perspective on things if you're honest. Christianity can be a very unethical religion um, because we don't take responsibility for our ethical actions. We project our ethics onto a text and that tells us what to do therefore. It's a really unethical way of 
thinking and behaving, but that's a conversation for another day. So I'd been pro-gay for a long time, and that hadn't been too much of an issue. I had to walk carefully about it. Um, you know, I wasn't publicly going on, um, but, you know, my workplace knew and my students knew. Um, and then in 2017, there was a new dean appointed, and... Um, he was more conservative than I... That was the time of the same-sex marriage debate, too, remember that. So the, I think the church was becoming more conservative and hardening their positions on these things. He decided um, that I was dangerous, um, which, of course, I was. But, um, hey, um, depends what you're trying to protect, doesn't it? Um, uh, because actually the church's position is much more dangerous because the church's position is killing it at the moment for what, you, for what it's worth. But anyway, so he decided to ban me from teaching and I fought this for a couple of years and um, just was unsuccessful. So um, at the end of 2018, I left Alpha Crucis and um, it was... So this was then during 2009, an extremely difficult time because, hey, I... I'd um, given, you know, two and a half decades of my life, um, PhD, studying. This was... I didn't have a career after this. What was I going to do? It's um, pro-gay, so you can't... It's not as you can go and join any other theological... You know, we're in Sydney, for crying out loud. So, um, uh, yeah, it's not as anyone's... Um, I suddenly had job offers coming out the door. And I was annoyed and angry. And, uh, and of course, I looked at the text as somewhat of my oppressor. So uh, reading the Bible with a much more angry and critical lens, you can read this text with a bit of anger as well. And uh, when you do that, um, you notice, um, first of all, Jesus is living out of the medical model of disability and healing this person. Um, and I, I know that that's an anachronism, sorry, that that's projecting. The danger is that we, I'm projecting my, I'm annoyed at Jesus because I'm projecting my 21st century social model of disability lens on a first century person who of course hasn't heard of the social model of disability. So it's pretty unfair, really, isn't it? But, um, but hey, that's good Bible reading. Of course we should be projecting our present experience onto the biblical text and thinking about its implication, because otherwise, what's the point of reading it? Um, if you're not exploring your present situation with this text, then it's just a piece of history, and um, that's pretty pointless. So, anyway, um, and uh, I was annoyed with Jesus for um, he didn't just heal this guy. He says, um, "Your sins are forgiven." What? Because this person's disabled, he must be a sinner? Uh, there has been a long history, of course, of religious assumptions that you get what you deserve. Um, and that just seemed completely wrong and unfair. Now, again, it's a little unfair to read the text in that way um, because elsewhere Jesus says quite different things. You'll remember the story... Um, of um, who made this man blind, um, his own sins or that of his parents, and Jesus says no one sins. So Jesus was a more sophisticated reader 
than I'm giving him credit for in this text. And we can say, um, at least it's not as though Jesus was singling out the paralytic here, was it? Because, of course, Jesus calls, is it, he's a universal, um, whether you're disabled or not disabled, he's going to call you a sinner and offer you forgiveness. So we can read that text more kindly than I was at the time, but there you go. Uh, that's the, the angry reading of the text, the frustration with why is Jesus always healing um, and what does it mean to identify the disabled man as a sinner, somehow getting what he deserves. So five readings, the final reading, and I'm almost done, Caroline. I said I'd get it half an hour. I think I'm almost there. Uh, the final reading of the text is now, and hopefully I can come at the text with a kinder attitude toward uh, God, Christianity, a more generous attitude. And I sort of, I think I do. Um, and, uh, um, and maybe a more creative reading of the text. So my final reading of the text is to try and imagine the text as something I can play with and rewrite a little bit. And from that perspective, I want to read the text instead of reading it from the, from the perspective of the uh, of Jesus, the healer, or um, from the perspective of the four people who carry Jesus into the building, which notice that that's how this text is often read, isn't it? Um, it's the people who are, who are sort of breaking down the roof to get their needy person into the building, or it's focused on God the healer. But we don't... It's interesting the paralysed person is very passive um, in this text. Not, the paralysed person doesn't even get a name. Um, so I think when we're going to rewrite this text, we need to give the paralysed person a name. Um, Claudia, we'll make it female because, you know, it's a, we'll do a feminist rereading if we're going to rewrite it, shouldn't we? Um, we'll call her Claudia. And from this perspective, she's not the one being sort of dragged against her will into this building, but she's the primary actor. So she's the one saying to her friends, come on guys, get me in there. And they're looking at the building and they're thinking, hmm, I don't know, it's a bit too crowded. And she goes, look, there's going to be a way here. There's some steps there. Carry me up there. You can rip the roof off and get me in. You see how different that is when the paralysed person has some agency. And it changes that whole social justice thing, by the way, because, you know, we're used to the white saviour saving the poor black person or whatever it is, um, instead of imagining that the person we want save is an agent in their own right, um, probably more capable of fixing their situation than we are. So here is that perspective from the bottom up where, um, where, the, um, where Claudia is the actor and she gets in and she's lowered down to Jesus. Um, and I'm happy to allow the healing. It adds a bit of drama to the reading, doesn't it? And, uh, and it does say something special about Jesus. I'll allow that as well. Um, but I'd imagine some conversation going on. You know, don't, don't forget that, that this is text written 30 years after Jesus by someone who's pulling out the key bits that are there. But this event probably took a little longer um, than you get recorded in that text. And I imagine a conversation going on where Claudia gets to do some talking. She's not just spoken at. And she talks to Jesus a little bit about her life and her needs and her desires. And Jesus learns something about what it's like to be disabled that he didn't know before he encountered this person. And 
the story goes on and she gets healed and she takes up her bed and walks. But then Jesus suddenly knows something about disability that he brings in to his later ministry. And so when we then have the parables of uh, the banquet, um, Jesus talks about including all these people with disability in the life of whatever community he was talking about at that point in time. And he's doing that. Notice he hasn't healed them, by the way. Um, he's doing that because he's encountered this disabled person, learned something about her, their life and realised, hey, uh, we need to do our community differently. So suddenly the disabled person is an agent with Christ in this story. So that's my final reading of the text. And I think I'll leave it with you. Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks, um, thanks so much, Shane. I think it's, well, it's a gift to us and even to be able to track in our own lives the different ways we actually approach the Bible, that it actually maybe is good and holy and right and true that our readings grow and shift and change over time. Not that we completely dismiss the ones we've held before, but we absorb them into new ways of, of understanding and and thinking and um, one of the reasons why I really wanted us to to look at a healing story and to look at it through different perspectives and especially to have Shane come and speak to us is that I do recognize that in the church in fact in all the churches I've ever been in and all the churches I've ever belong to I've only ever heard of healing preached as a given and attached some way to someone's faith either the faith of the person praying or the faith of the person receiving healing and I think that that's a valid way for us as Christians to talk about healing we do have a biblical text that has many stories of healing in it but I think one of the problems that has risen for me in only reading it in that way has been to miss the gift of um, reading it through the lens of disability, seeing it in different ways, holding in tension the reality that sometimes healing and miracles do seem to happen in life, both to those who pray for them and those that don't. But my experience is more that 97% of the time they don't. And I think guys, we have to be mature enough, deep of faith enough, love of Jesus enough to hold the tension that exists there, to pray for those among us who want prayer, but to love and live with hope and faith when we don't see the answers to the prayer that we want and actually learn from other people who are very different to us, who may indeed read this text in a different way and call forth to us a more bold and a more faith-filled reading of this text that doesn't see it as kind of like a white saviour thing where I pray and God does a miracle, but together we learn and wrestle with what it means to live um, loving Jesus and seeing the image of God in every single person. And so I don't know how provoked you felt this morning listening to Shane. I don't know if it was a relief to hear him speak. Maybe it was a relief for many of you. 
Maybe there was, maybe even as he spoke, if you were paying attention to your body, you might have noticed a little bit of tension creeping in, like, oh, can he say that in church? Are we allowed to acknowledge that Jesus doesn't heal sometimes? Are we allowed to rewrite the t- I don't know how you felt this morning, but I want to really challenge you to go away this week and to think, to reread the text to consider what Shane said, to ask God what God wants to stir in you out of this text and then to like sit with that and see what the gifts are that that it brings. See what God might have to say to us. But before, so we're going to finish up in a minute, but before we do, I think given that it was quite, uh, maybe for some people quite a different perspective to read this text through. I think it'd be really worthwhile for us just to chat to the people next to us and just share what was it for you that you enjoyed about this morning, felt provoked about, like heard afresh, want to think about some more. So how about we just actually process a little bit together before we walk out the door so that whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is doing amongst us just sinks a little bit deeper into our hearts and into our minds. Can we do that? So just with the people next to you, give you a couple of minutes, just share what you loved, what provoked you, what you want to think about some more and um, we'll finish up like that. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central.